grace of God. And this morning, I want to study and go over the supreme example of God's grace, and that being the cross. I'm going to read to you four verses, verses 36 through 39. I will ask you the last time this morning to stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God, and then I'll allow you to be seated. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36 says this, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let us pray. Father, this morning we love you. God, we're grateful. Grateful for the opportunity to come together and worship God freely in this country. God, on this anniversary of that tragic day ten years ago, we're thankful, God, that we live in one of the greatest countries this world has ever known. We're thankful for our military and our armed forces, God, and everybody that's worked in any form of service, God, to, to keep this country safe. God, even now we lift them up to pray, God, your protection upon them. We pray for the families and the mothers and the children that, that are left back here home while their loved ones are across seas fighting for our freedoms. But God, this morning we come together ultimately to hear from you. God, that you would be exalted and lifted up and glorified. And right now I acknowledge the need for you to anoint me, God. God, that I acknowledge that, that, that in and of myself I can do nothing. And Lord, we ask, God, that Your Spirit will begin to move upon our hearts. God, I pray that You'd anoint me this morning to teach and preach in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. God, help me to say nothing more than You'd have me to say and nothing less. We pray this morning, if there be any here, God, Lord, that have yet to be freed from their sins. God, if there be any here that are still lost and undone, that today, God, You would save them and add them to the family of God. I pray, God, as we study grace, Lord, Your Word would lift our hearts up this morning. And, God, we'd be encouraged as we see the greatness of our God. Lord, I just ask You to show us Your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For three weeks, we've been studying grace. It's an, it's an absolutely thrilling topic. It is a refreshing topic. I even used that word refreshing in week number one a month ago when we started. And I talked about the idea of just that cool drink of water and, and the desire that I believe God is just kind of wanting to give us that cool drink of water, that refreshing sense of renewal as a church. And we've been studying grace. Grace is, it is so amazing. We've discussed the, the technical term, that being God's unmerited favor. The reality that God gives blessings to us that God has given for no other reason than except because He loves. And He loves with a holy, undefiled, pure love. 
a lot of times when we study grace, I think that it's easiest for us to only understand one side of the coin. Have you ever heard the term, there's two sides to every coin, there's two sides to every story. And as I begin to think about the amazing grace of God, and I thought about the reality that all of our hope is wrapped up in the fact that God is a God of grace. And as we've studied the last couple of weeks, grace sometimes is hard to swallow because we want to feel like we have some say in the matter. I mean, we want to feel like the reason God's blessed me so much and the reason God loves me so much is because I'm so blessable and I'm so lovable. But the reality is that's just not the truth. And once that becomes the case, grace ceases to be grace. Mercy ceases to be mercy. It is not of works that we're saved, lest any man should boast, but of the amazing grace of God. And I begin to think about God's redemptive plan since the beginning of time. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 talks about the, the Lamb of the book of life that was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, here's what that means in layman terms. God had His divine plan of the cross and salvation through Jesus Christ on Calvary's hill. God had this divine plan at work before the world was ever made. And so we see this God of grace and, and His desire to, to, to love us and His desire to make a way when there was no way. His desire to reach out when we were unlovable. His desire, is, uh, as uh, Romans chapter 5 tells us, that to love us while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God commended His love towards us in that while we were still enemies. You understand that God didn't decide to love you when you decided to love Him. The Word of God says we love Him because He first loved us. While we were still enemies. And this redemptive plan of God's grace has been put in process before the foundation of the world. Now here's what we know. That everything points to the cross. I'll tell you a real simple piece of theology. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ, the crucifixion on the cross and His resurrection. Everything after that point looks back at it. But all of history as we know it hinges on the event of Jesus' death burial, and resurrection. Now, if this is true, which it is, we must see the fullness, the completeness of God's grace in the event of the cross. Now, as I begin to try to wrap my, my, my mind around this as I was studying this, this was difficult for me. Because remember I said we see grace, we see one side of the coin. Grace seems to be this fun-loving, easy-going, just bless and do good all the time type mentality. There is no, there seems to be, um, you know, no, no rules, no laws, no regulations. It's all just grace, and there's no works that are involved on it. And, and, and it's that's one side of the coin, and all that is true. But this morning, I want to flip that coin over, and I want I want us to look together at what we can learn about the fullness of God's grace 
when we examine the cross, God's grace comes to a head at the cross. It is here that we often find it difficult to see grace. Because what we see is the wrath of God outpoured on His Son. Our focus, if you will, shifts from God's grace towards us and we see God's wrath on His Son. But the purpose was for us. There was a reason that Jesus had to endure what He endured. I want to this morning work towards the cross as we started there in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you did not know, in verse 26, it is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He knows that His his last breath is is literally hours away. And, And He goes before God in the garden and He cries out. The Bible says His soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Have you ever felt that way? Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that any of us have been where Jesus was because we haven't. But have you ever felt that way where your soul was so crushed you just felt like it would be easier not to be alive? Not to have to feel the pain? Not to have to suffer the anguish? Not to have to deal with the thought of what might be? This is where Jesus was. And he prayed, God, if there's any way, take this thing away from me. What can we see about grace? What does all this have to do about grace? What lessons about grace can we see clearer at Calvary? First of all, this morning, I want to tell you that grace is giving something of value. Grace is giving something of value. In other words, God did not give us the leftovers, which so often is what we give God. The grace of God is the grace that gives something of value. You see, Jesus wasn't being asked to give something that was easy. Jesus wasn't asked to give something that was worthless. Jesus wasn't asked to give something of little value. He was giving His very own life. And it teaches us something about grace. And here's, I have so many important points this morning, and I'm just going to go through them and hope that you pick them up and that God just puts them deep in your soul. Because remember last week we studied the grace of God through us and that we need to be people of grace. If we are His hands and His feet, then we need to be the grace of God and the love of God to a lost and dying world. You need to understand something about grace. Grace gives something of value. Grace is not always easy. Grace is not always fun. Grace, when it is received by the one who it's given to, is always helpful. But sometimes God calls us to give things that hurt. Jesus gave of Himself. In other words, this morning... If I'm going to be a person of grace, and I'm going to allow the Lord to be my example of what grace looks like towards me, I'm going to have to understand that sometimes I'm just going to have to give of myself a little more than I really want to give of myself. Grace isn't simply giving something because you don't have anything else to do with it. 
Well, I don't need this. Give it to somebody. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm telling you is this, is that God's grace is bigger than that. The grace of God gives something of value. What might that look like in our lives? How might that work? Maybe somebody's really done you wrong. Maybe somebody has really hurt you. Can I first say, we put Jesus on the cross. You were there. Your sins were there, along with the rest of this world, nailing Him to that cruel tree. But maybe somebody's done you wrong. And in order for you to truly be gracious towards them and love them and, 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 and show them kindness and show them favor, the unmerited favor, which, by the way, that's what grace is. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. You're going to have to give something up of yourself. You're going to have to lay down your pride. That's so easy said. I mean, it's, we talk about humbling ourselves and laying down our pride. But you know what? When the rubber hits the road and somebody's done you wrong and it comes your turn to love them and bless your enemies, you find it hard because that old pride creeps up and says, well, huh, he doesn't deserve it. Grace has nothing to do with whether he deserves it or not. You didn't deserve what Jesus did for you on the cross either. As you guys start talking about this, get, this, this is what happens. I would imagine half the crowd, you're fighting this. Pride rolls up. Well, you don't know what he's done to me. You don't know what happened to me. Can I talk to you for a moment about forgiveness? A little side note of grace. <clears throat> being people of grace and being people of forgiveness doesn't mean that I totally just forget everything that's ever happened. Forgiveness ultimately sets me free. As long as there is unforgiveness and the unwillingness to give grace, what I'm ultimately saying to the person that has done me wrong is that you owe me something. And once you pay up, then we can be fair, we can be square. But until you pay up, we will never be square. We'll, no mercy, no forgiveness, no grace. Forgiveness says this. You don't owe me anything anymore. Now there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. And I think this is where we, we fail as a church sometimes in differentiating between the two. In order for there to be reconciliation... The other party has to desire it as well. But you can forgive somebody. In other words, forgiveness, the, the idea of debt. You can forgive somebody and say, you don't owe me anything in order for us to be, for me to love you, for me to be gracious to you. You don't, you don't owe me anything. And that person doesn't, if that person doesn't care and that person doesn't want to come to you and that person doesn't want to be reconciled, hey, don't kid yourself. You're not going to have the greatest relationship in the world. But as long as I'm unwilling to forgive somebody, I live my life feeling like somebody owes me something. That something has been taken away from me and I cannot be happy, I cannot be satisfied, I cannot be complete until they pay up. You see, unforgiveness actually robs me 
not the other person. I had a good friend of mine that was in a very a tragic situation. Um, his son was three years old, and his son was in a vehicle with his stepdad. And his stepdad didn't have him buckled in and was going about 60 miles an hour and got in a car wreck and it killed his son. And you could certainly understand the frustration, the anger, the feeling of something was taken from me. And as I began to discuss what forgiveness is, I was able to simply say that, listen, you've got to get to the place where He doesn't owe you anything. There's nothing that He has to do in order for you to treat Him right, to treat Him fair. That's forgiveness. doesn't mean you're going to go to bed at night and totally forget everything that's ever happened to you. doesn't mean that you're, that, that, that you're never going to um, remember But what it does mean is, I release the debt. You don't owe me anything else anymore. Now, can I say this? That's a hard thing to do. It really is. That is a hard thing to do. That's where the rubber meets the road. But that is grace. That's what grace is. And sometimes grace is giving the hard thing, something of value. It's not always easy. It's not always what I want. Secondly... Grace is not weakness. This is important. Grace is not weakness. Matter of fact, real grace is the opposite of weakness. Some people hide behind what they falsely call grace as a cover for their coward-like actions. Say that again. Some people hide behind what they falsely call grace as a cover for their coward-like actions. Grace is not withholding truth in order to keep peace at the present moment. When we talked in week one, we talked about the call. The grace of God and the call to salvation. It is the grace of God, that, that, that song, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relief." It is the grace of God that stirs our hearts and tells us, listen, you're lost. And unless you're redeemed, and unless God forgives you of your sins, you're going to spend an eternity in hell. Now, that's not an easy thing to deal with. That's not an easy thought to have to grapple with. As a sinner who is an enemy of God, who is destined to an eternity in hell. That's not the type of news that you like to hear. But the reality is grace loves us too much to leave us where we're at and allow us to die in a state of obliviousness. And grace is not withholding information to keep peace. And I've seen that that extreme in Christianity. I'm just a, a merciful person. I'm just a peaceful person. I've, I've just got my, my shoes shod with the gospel of peace. That's all. Maybe you do, but maybe you're a coward and you're afraid to speak truth, and that's the reality of it. The Bible says the gospel is an offense. 
And it is, by the way. It is offensive that we are a wicked being beyond repair and that there's nothing we could ever do to earn salvation before God. And that the only way I can be saved is to acknowledge my wicked, sinful, helpless state and place my faith in the death and resurrection of another man. Hey, that is an offense, but it's the truth. And I want to say this about grace. Grace is how we've got to spread the truth. The gospel is already an offense. We don't need to add to it in the way we communicate it. But grace is willing to speak the truth. Grace is willing to say, brother, sister, friend, mom, dad, co-worker, I love you too much to lie to you and act like everything's okay and you don't have anything to worry about. Because the Word of God says, and here's what it says. You see, grace is willing to do the hard things sometimes. I thank God for the first three weeks of grace, and I promise you the next two weeks we've got two more sermon series sermons in this series. The next two weeks take us right back to that amazing, really happy part of grace. But this morning... I want to show you that grace is even bigger than that. And that we have a responsibility as God's people to be people of grace. And real grace is not weakness. Real grace is not simply withholding truth just to keep peace at the present moment. Grace is always concerned about the best interest of others. This was what God had in store for us. And this is, this is one of the most important rules of ministry, one of the most important rules of whether you say something or don't say something. You have to ask yourself, is this really in the best interest of everybody involved? Or am I just trying to cause problems? Am I just hurt because I got done wrong and so I want other people to hurt? And what I'm going to do is say everything to hurt people, but underneath the banner of, well, I'm just speaking the truth. Did you know that just because it's the truth doesn't mean you have to say it? There's some things that just don't need to be said. The Bible says the fool vents all his feelings. Some things just don't need to be said. Quite frankly. Quite frankly, some of the things we think are just plain dumb. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. But just because you think you're right, just because it's truth, doesn't mean it has to be spoken. And here's one of the greatest rules of thumb as we see this. God had us. He had our best interest in His mind. He had our best interest in His heart. Is this going to help others? Is the motivation... Behind me saying this thing because I really believe it's going to help. And here's the reality. Sometimes you've got to say hard things if you really want to help. But check your heart and ask yourself, is a motivation behind this because I really want to help this person? Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Can I tell you that Christianity is about making you holy? Christianity is about 
drawing you closer to God and helping you to know Him deeper and more intimately and drawing near to Him that He might draw near to you, that you might ultimately be like Him as much as you can. We're we're to be made continually into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about just feeling good all the time. Some of the things that God has had to deal with me in my own personal life, they didn't feel good at the time. But the reality is, because He loved me, He has a plan for my life, and He wants to use me to the fullest capacity He can, there's some things God needed to say to Joplin Emerson to get me straightened up and to get me where He wanted me to be. And that's grace. That is grace. God's grace is willing to do the hard work at times. Let's look at this thought a little bit further. Especially because we live in this day of tolerance. I talked about that last week. This isn't tolerance. Grace is not just letting anybody get... It's not every thought's equal. It's not that every, everybody's opinion is the same. It's not that, that we just tolerate sin. That's not what grace is. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Apparently, Paul wasn't writing in our day and age. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Now, I want you to listen closely to the next two verses. For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit. And he goes on to say, afterward, it yields peaceable fruit. I do want to deal with God's chastening of us and, 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 and why grace is willing to do the hard thing. And I'm going to work back to the garden in just a moment. But I want to say this about our text. The Bible clearly teaches the importance of disciplining our children and our need for the discipline of God in our own lives. I'm not going to stand up this morning and tell you how to discipline your child, Here's what I'll tell you. We as a culture are not doing our kids any favor when we let them make the rules in the house, decide when they're going to eat, where they're going to eat, how much they're going to eat, where they're going to stay, 
where they're not going to stay, who's going to, what they're going to buy, excuse me, what you're going to buy for them, what sports they're going to play, where you're going to take. And this is the culture we live in. We live in a culture where kids are raising parents and not the other way around. And we wonder why in the world that our, that our high schools and that our college-age students are in such a mess when it comes to morality. Your kids, and I use the word kids, insinuating children, your children are not smart enough to make their own moral decisions, mom and dad, and you've got to take the reins to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if they're 18 and they want to step out and they want to leave, that's their business when they turn 18. Or as long as they're in the house. So long as they're children, you have a responsibility to be teaching them the truth. You also need to, on the flip side of that, you need to admonish them when they do good. You need to love them. Every child needs to hear, I love you, you're a good boy, you're a good girl, and I'm proud of you. Every child needs to hear that. It's not enough just to discipline your kids. But it's not enough to just encourage them positively all the time and there be no discipline at all when they find themselves sinning against God and sinning against their parents. Back to our sermon. Paul says, For they, talking about our earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, that being God, for our prophets that we may be partakers of His holiness. Can I tell you that grace is willing to do the hard thing? Can you see this morning how, how there's two sides to grace? Grace is not just letting everything go by, and grace is not all just, just acting as if there's no problem, no need for discipline, no need for change, no need for um, conflict, addressing a situation. Because sometimes... You've got to have enough courage and enough grace to hit the conflict head on and say, look, son, look, daughter, co-worker, whatever, family, doesn't matter. Hit the situation head on and say, hey, we need to talk this thing out. Because you're on the wrong track and you're going to get hurt if you keep going the way you're going. And I care too much about you to just act like nothing needs changed. Grace is willing to do the hard thing, and we see that there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see that it was difficult for Jesus. We see that His soul was sorrowful to death, but you, my friends, were on His mind. And Grace said, I love you too much to leave you where you're at. And I'm willing to give of myself, and I'm willing to do the hard thing for your sake. You see, God's concern, He for our profit. He's concerned for you. Notice that we may be partakers of His holiness. Can I tell you that primarily this is what God's concerned about? Holiness. And whether you believe it or not, true holiness will actually bring happiness. So long as you're seeking happiness and you think God is some puppet in the sky that if you pray the right way and control Him the right way, He's going to give you all the stuff you've ever wanted here on earth and then you can be happy... Number one, you'll never be happy. Number two, you'll never be holy. And number three, you'll never really understand the relationship God wants with you. 
But when you get things straight and you understand that God has a desire to be with you and to work in you and through you, that His grace and His purpose for your life is bigger than stuff that you're going to leave behind when you die anyways. When you understand it's bigger than that. And God's desire for you, as hard as this might be for us to understand, it is truly that we become more like Him. He is the Holy One. And it tells us right here, His desire is that we might be partakers of what? His holiness. God wants to make you and me more like Him. And I promise you this, on the authority of the Word of God, and then secondly, on my own personal life experience and testimony, when we'll get our eyes off of the things that don't matter, and we'll get our eyes on Him, and we'll try to just let Him make us and mold us into the men and women we ought to be, and He begins to work in us that holiness that He desires, there is a true inner untainted happiness that you'll never find anywhere else. And all the things of this world grow faintly dim. They lose their luster. They're not so important anymore. Because God's primary goal is holiness for us. Now the Father disciplines the Son whom He loves. How do we find this balance? I mean, how do I know when to be gracious and forgiving and merciful? Which, by the way, we should always be forgiving. Because forgiving is about, you don't owe me anything. But how do I know, when, when do I show mercy? When do I show grace? We see God pouring out His wrath on His Son. We see the fact that there had to be a penalty paid. God took it upon Himself. What is the balance? Because there are some on any spectrum that will take the last ten minutes of what I just preached on and they'll use that to, to, as a reason to just ride their kids and to ride everybody on, on, under the grounds of accountability. And then when I preach on mercy and grace, there's others that take it to the extreme of never challenging anybody, never doing anything with it just because they're a person of mercy and grace. So, Pastor, what is the rule? How do I know what to do? Here is the answer. The question always must be, is this in the best interest of everybody involved? That's always a question, and it is that simple. And I want to show you how it works. Sometimes God, if you will, doesn't seem to show mercy when He chastens us. I mean, after all, that doesn't seem very merciful that He's given me a whipping for what I've done. And then sometimes God seems to show mercy and relent. I want you to know this about God. Everything He does, it's always about your best interest. And I'll show you an example of it. He was willing to give us mercy when it came to the penalty of our sins. It was a penalty, death. You see, had God not given us mercy there, it would not have been in our best interest. It would have destroyed us. So He gave us mercy. But when it comes to sometimes our foolishness, just like I talked about the children, 
If God left us to that and didn't deal with it, that would be to our detriment as well. And so God's decision is always based upon what is best for you. And our decisions need to be same. When we're talking about parenting kids, how do I know to be merciful? When do I discipline? When do I show them grace? Here's the answer. You've got to ask yourself, and you need the leading of God, and there is no perfect box. There is no perfect formula. You need the Holy Spirit to lead you. But the bottom line is this. You've got to ask yourself every single time, what is truly the best interest here? Am I going to teach my kids something by showing them mercy and grace? Or if I just don't do anything about this, am I teaching them that bad behavior is fine and are they going to make this become a pattern of their life? You see, the question is, what is in their best interest? And this is what we must, we must learn to, to work this way when we're determining how do I show mercy? How do I show grace? Because grace does the hard thing. Grace is willing to confront us when we need confronted. We also see that real grace is selfless. Jesus said, not my will. Grace is concerned about what is best for others, not self. Can I make a comment this morning and say this, that selfish people will never be people of grace. I have seen many of Christians that want to be holy, God-fearing, God-honoring men and women of God. They want to be close to God. They want to be loving. When they read things like, love your enemies, bless those that persecute you, and, and those that spitefully use you, they think, I want that to be me. And there's just this block a lot of times. They just can't do that. Every time, it sounds good when the preacher's preaching. It sounds so holy. It sounds so right. Sounds so godlike. I want to be that way. But the moment somebody actually tips them off, the moment somebody crosses them, all of a sudden something comes up, there's no mercy, there's no grace. And I want to, I'm going to tell you this. It's been my experience in my years of dealing with people. Most often, those are some of the most selfish people you'll ever meet. It's all about me. It's all about what I want, how I feel, what I think. And people who are selfish will never truly be people of grace. Because God's grace is a type of grace that Jesus says right here in the garden, not as I will. I'm willing to lay down my life. Jesus said He was sorrowful in His soul, even to the point of death. That soul, it is the root of our mind, our will, and our emotions. Jesus said, I'm willing to lay it down. Not my will, Lord, but Yours. And today I want to show you something that I believe is probably <clears throat> the most important thing for you to grasp so far in four weeks of studying grace. And that is this. True grace gives the best there is to give. The grace of God gives the best there is to give. I want you to look with me at the Garden of Gethsemane. We are already there. That was our text. What did God give? God the Father. He gave His only Son. Now I want to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. Is there anything that God could have given 
more important to God? Nothing. I'll do my best to draw the picture this morning of what is in here, and I hope that you see it. Here is the great eternal creator God. The one whom he spoke and everything that we see left into existence. This great, amazing God that is vast beyond what we can fully understand or imagine, who has the capacity to hear all people at all times, to answer every prayer, to be in every situation, to be in every place at all times constantly. I can't fathom that. That's how big He is. That's how great He is. That's how vast He is, the Creator's of the heavens and the universe, and yet He gave to us the single greatest thing He had to give. That's amazing. But I want you to see something. It doesn't stop there. Not only did God the Father give the best thing He had to give, so did God the Son. What else could He give but His very own life? Now you fathers in here, follow me. If you think about this, As a father, what would be harder to give, yourself or your son? The answer is your son. I'd give myself any day before I had to give my son to be crucified. But if you don't have any children to give, the hardest thing to give would be your very own self, your own life. And so God the Father gave the best thing He had to give, and so did God the Son in tandem together at Calvary. You know how hard it was for the will of God that His Son lay down His life on the cross? What we see happen here with Jesus is extremely difficult. We see that He was in anguish. But the Bible doesn't tell us what was going through the Father's heart. The Bible doesn't tell us the pain that He was feeling. But here's what we know. God the Father gave the best He had to give, and so did God the Son. That's amazing. There's nothing they could have given that was any better. God gave everything He could possibly give. That's grace. Now, what's the application? First of all, this. He gave it for you. He gave it for you. Now, here's what I said just a couple minutes ago. Of everything I've said in four weeks, this is the most important. Now, I'm not going to try to rush through it, but this is the last point this morning. God gave the best He had to give. There's nothing He could have given better. God the Father and God the Son. God just, just exhausted Himself. Everything God could give, He gave it. That's grace. And why did He give it? For you. Now, why is that important to us? Listen very closely to me. Put your feelings aside for just a moment. Put your feelings to the side and deal with the reality of the statement that I'm about to make. Whether you feel it or not, That means that you're important. It's so hard to see ourselves as that important. But not only are you important, you're so important that God was willing to exhaust Himself and give the best 
he had to give for you. Isn't it hard to feel that important? How could I be that valuable? I'm telling you, God's grace is bigger than we understand. His love for you is deeper than you could ever know. And this morning, if you're fighting feelings of worthlessness, and you're fighting feelings of, I could never be anything significant, look what God gave for you. Who cares if the world thinks you're worthless or not? He's right. They're wrong. He's bigger than they are. He's greater than they are. He is the Creator of heaven and earth. He is the Almighty God. And He thinks you're so important that He gave the best He had to give for you. I'm telling you, God exhausted His grace for us at Calvary. There's nothing else He had to give. He pulled everything out, if you will. Everything out of His pockets. Everything out of the wall. Everything out of the... Everything He had to give. Everything of value. And he, he poured it out for you. That means you're important. You have to be important for God to have given you so much. <clears throat> now, I want to show you something in Romans chapter 8 about this point. And we're going to pick up here again next week. But I want to show you this before I let you out of here. In Romans chapter 8, looking back at what took place on the cross. Paul says this in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? I'm talking to you about God giving His best. Follow me just a couple more minutes. Paul is making what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. And the argument is this. If God would do something great in order to do something small, surely if He accomplished the great thing, then He can also accomplish the small thing. Let me give you an example of what it might look like in our lifetime. A father, hears that, uh, a father finds out that his son has leukemia. He's probably going to die if he cannot get treatment. And unfortunately, he doesn't have health insurance and he does not have the money to treat his son of this deathly disease. And he finds out that his son is going to have to start treatment sometime in the next four to six months if there's any chance of him living. He needs $40,000 before the doctors will do the operation. 
He calls all of his friends. He calls everybody he knows. He goes to the bank. He does everything he can, as any loving father would, to try to come up with the money for the treatment so that his boy might not die. And in the Sunday paper, he finds there's a marathon coming to town three months from now. And the winner of this marathon will get a check for $40,000, the exact amount of money that's needed for his boy's operation. The father's never ran a race. But he says to himself, I'm going to run this race. And immediately he begins training. He starts out one to two miles a day and it's all the further he can make it before he finds himself sick and unable to go any further. And he begins to eat right. He begins to eat healthier. He begins to train. And and, and each day he runs a little bit further. And by the time a month and a half, two months rolls around, he's halfway through making it all the way the distance of the marathon. And he trains as hard as he can for the next six weeks. And finally the day is here of the marathon. And he enters in and he runs it with every ounce of energy he has, pushing himself to the brink of death because he needs that check for his little boy. At last, he comes across the finish line just in time. Winner of the race. Everything he's trained for for three months. And he gets the check for $40,000. There's not a single one of us in here that would think that that father would think to himself, wow, i got $40,000. I think I'll go buy me a car and let my son die. There's no question he would take his son and get his son healed. Why? Because he did the greater thing first. If he was willing to put himself through all the hard work and all the difficulty of training for the race, surely once the race was done and once he had received what he ran for, surely he would take the purpose for the race and put it and invest it in his son. That's the argument from the greater to the lesser. Paul makes it right here in Romans chapter 8. If God didn't even spare up His own Son, but delivered Him for us, how much more will He freely bless us in all things? Here's the point. Jesus died so that we could be in a right relationship with God. And Paul is speaking to the children of God who often, like all of us, struggle with feeling whether or not like God loves us, whether or not God can bless us. And we put all this stuff on ourselves where we feel like we've got to pray so much and read so much and do the right thing and make so much church attendance and do this and do that before God will ever bless us, before God will ever answer our prayers. And Paul says, hold on a second. Do you really think that God would do everything He did in exhausting everything He had to give, that God would give the best He had to give for you. And then after He gave it, not willing to bless you for the very reason that He sent His Son to bleed and die? Paul says, get your thinking straight. God can bless you freely. In closing today, as our worship team comes... About three and a half years ago, I went through a very, very extreme depression. And there were a lot of circumstances in my life that caused me to be in a very stressful situation. 
And I was, I was just at the brink of, of my breaking point. It felt like every day I was going to break. And I had all these thoughts. I mean, I just like this thing had to happen before there could ever be any change. And then this thing had to happen before there could. I had all these things that needed to happen in order for me to have peace. And I was sick. I mean, I was real sick. Mentally exhausted. Emotionally exhausted. I was about as mentally sick as I've ever been. I was as mentally sick as I've ever been in 32 years of living. And I remember thinking every day I'd go home and here's what I'd think. I'm just in a, I can't get out of this. I can't, I, I, everything is so messed up that until this changes and that changes and this thing is different and that thing is different, my life, there's no way I can ever have peace and joy. And then I saw what I just shared with you. And I remember I was at 1705 North Woodlawn in a duplex, downstairs in the basement, in my rocking chair, laid back, thinking about this passage and what it means, trying to wrap my mind around it. And here's what I believed at that stage. I did, honestly, I didn't believe God could bless me freely. Because I thought in order for God to bless me freely, in order for God to give me the best, in order for God to move in my life, in order for God to use me in a great way, in order for God to anoint me when I preach, in order for God to do anything great in my life, I thought all these other things had to change before God could do it. And the words of the Apostle Paul began to speak to me. Joplin, do you really think God would pour out everything He did on the Son and then still have His hands tied to your petty circumstances? He can bless you freely. He has been blessing you freely. And you haven't seen it because you are too wrapped up in your own small little world and you think that everything has to be different in order for God to bless you. Your, 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 your view of the cross is too small, son. Your understanding of my ability to bless you freely is too small. This morning, I want you to know, church, if God didn't spare up His own Son for us, there is nothing, nothing that can hold Him back from blessing His children as He chooses, when He chooses, how He chooses. We should rest. Rest in the greatness of our God. Rest in the, the majesty of His grace. It's bigger than all my sins. It's bigger than all my weakness. It's bigger than my circumstances. His grace is that big. Father, move all across this room this morning. I've said it the best way I know how, Lord, but I just pray, God, that you bring it to life in the light and in the heart of your people. Help us to see, God, that you did the greater thing. You gave the greatest thing there was. And surely if you would do that while we were yet enemies... Surely you can bless us freely now. God, help us to abandon our fear-based works thinking. God, help us to move into the right relationship of simply loving You because You first loved us.